Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon or you can find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in keeping this show alive and a heartfelt thanks for all of your kindness and support. Now let's dive into today's episode. In this episode, I wanted to continue our history of magical talismans and amulets by talking a little bit about the magic and talismans from the Far East and the Orient. Um, Before I start, I'd like to say I'm not an expert in this particular field, so it's taken quite a lot of research uh, to to kind of pull this together. Um, So apologies if any of this um, information is incorrect. I am a student and I'm still learning a lot of this stuff myself, so... Apologies for any offence. Talismans and amulets have been a really massive part of culture within Asia for thousands of years, serving as powerful symbols of protection, good luck, and also spiritual connection. And these objects are, like in the other areas we've been discussing, you know, believed to hold mystical powers that can ward off evil, Uh, bring good luck, bring prosperity, and also enhance one's health and well-being. And the use of talismans and amulets in Asia dates back to ancient times when they would have been used by shamans, priests, as well as the ordinary people to communicate with the spirit world and to gain its blessings. From China to India, Japan to Indonesia, the tradition of wearing talismans and amulets has endured and also continued to evolve, reflecting each country's kind of diverse cultural and religious beliefs. And this rich history has also provided a fascinating insight into the role of spirituality and magic and superstition in these societies, and also the enduring appeal of these powerful magical objects. In ancient China, dating back to the Eastern Han Dynasty around 25 AD to 220 AD, we see talismans known as Fu talismans were created and these were used for various different purposes such as protection from negative influences, um, achieving specific goals such as health and long life. And they were considered to be one of the most potent tools that a priest could possess. They were typically made of consecrated rice paper or cloth and would have been inscribed with various auspicious symbols, characters and images that would incorporate traditional glyphs. They'd also have things called bargua symbols and correspondences and also the I Ching hexagram magical symbols. These were used for a multiple multitude of different purposes, 
uh, such as ensuring the good health of the person that bought them, bringing good fortune, but also protecting against evil spirits as well. And as I mentioned, they would have these magical words of power and symbols on them that were really designed to open a celestial gate to the spirit world and establish contact with the summoned entity or deity. The Taoist shamans would imbue these talismans with all their power, which the individual can then obviously use as a ritual object to maintain direct contact with the spirit world. And the designs of these talismans varied greatly, but they usually included symbols relevant to the spirit world, including astrological signs, five element symbols, or eight trigrams. And these talismans, similar to some of the other other areas that we've discussed, were believed to really be kind of a dual energetic symbol, so existing both on the earth as a physical inscription, but also in heaven as a spiritual influence vibrating within the celestial realms. So the magical characters on them summoned the powers of heaven corresponding to each symbol. So it's very similar to what we were talking about with regards to the Kabbalistic Tree of Life and the Four Worlds, where you would use you know, specific god names, specific archangel names, specific uh, spirit names to essentially kind of create this bridge between the mundane reality and the spiritual reality. When creating these talismans, the Taoist priests used particular esoteric writing known as cloud writing or celestial calligraphy, which was traditionally carved onto or imprinted within tangible items such as wood, paper, wax, soil, clay, stone and metal, as well as energetic mediums such as water, fire, smoke, mist clouds and air. Regardless of the medium used, the object was always magically activated and empowered through specific incantations and rituals. And the ancient Taoists believed that the talisman's magical power came from its permanent inhabitation by spirits, enabling the individual to communicate directly with the spirit world through the talisman or the amulet without the aid of a medium, so without the aid of an actual priest. Once you've got this object, you can then use it uh, almost like your kind of phone line to the spirit world. As such, these talismans are treated with great respect, fear and secrecy. And the process of creating these talismans is described by um, Pro- Professor Jerry and Jerry Allen Johnson um, in his book, The Secret Teachings of Esoteric Taoist Magic, as follows. The secret of the effectiveness of a magical talisman is that inscribed and locked within the magical symbols lies the written representation of the condensed magical words and esoteric powers of the most subtle energetic and spiritual realms. To unlock these magical powers, the priest needed to repeat specific incantations to activate the esoteric symbols hidden within the talisman while simultaneously performing secret hand seals. Once activated, the magic contained within the talisman could work indefinitely to heal, protect or spiritually awaken its owner.
As we can see, this quote highlights the mystical nature of these magical objects and also the belief that they contain potent esoteric powers that can be unlocked through specific rituals performed by a priest. It also suggests that the effectiveness of the talisman or the object lies in their ability to connect the physical world with the subtle energetic and spiritual realms. A really good book that I highly recommend um, for anyone interested in this particular topic is um, a book about food talismans called The Tao of Craft by the author Benabel Wen, which provides a really in-depth look at the history, the methods and the applications of food talismans and really making a lot of these materials available in English language for the first time ever. In her book, she describes a food talisman as follows, and I quote, A food talisman is an ideograph that represents an intention. It consists of both drawings and writing, sometimes legible, but often not. The ideographs represent a systematic language or code that is used to facilitate communication between heaven, earth and man. Then, through craft or ceremonial rituals, a practitioner accumulates chi energy from sources in the environment and channels it in concentrated form into the food talisman, in effect using the practitioner's force to transmute the properties of that object. The foo. Metaphysical energy can be harnessed and transmuted to empower, amplify, strengthen, weaken, dispel or block energy in a way that can rectify perceived imbalances in the physical or material plane. Esoteric Taoist practitioners believe that this is how luck can be changed. That is how the direction of physical manifestations can be altered. The Fu Talisman works with the Qi in the practitioner's environment. Such energy is present everywhere, in everything that you see, be it a tree, thunder, a piece of crystal quartz, a bowl of rainwater, or emotions such as love and anger. That unseen energy increases in potency when two people fall in love or make love, when we hate or feel extreme jealousy or when there is a large congregation of people gathered for a shared or unified purpose. The crafting of a food talisman, in effect, redistributes the balance between the yin and the yang of qi energy and, in doing so, can better attract career, wealth or romantic opportunities. Food talismans can be used to strengthen or weaken certain personality characteristics. The craft of a foo consists of pulling desirable metaphysical energy and channeling that energy into a concentrated space so that it might help to modify existing energies in that given space. Thus, a foo for wealth is essentially a concentrated knot of chi energy that is calibrated by a practitioner and keyed to rendering an environment more amenable to wealth-generating opportunities. If a foo is crafted to ease emotional tensions in a domestic environment, such a talisman is a concentrated knot of energy that will weaken aggression and strengthen compassion, love and gentility. The craft of foo is a form of alchemy that works with unseen metaphysical energy. 
It is the transmutation of that energy of chi. That's a quote from Benabel Wen's um, The Tower of Craft book, which I highly recommend. As we can see in that quote, though, the author really kind of highlights how the symbolic and pictorial image represents an intention that through magical practice and ceremonial ritual, the practitioner accumulates the chi energy from sources in the natural world and then is channeling it into the talisman, which can then be used to rectify imbalances in the physical or material world, with the magician acting almost like an intermediary between the world of matter and the world of spirit. But also she mentions, interestingly, that there's a price to pay for these actions. And it's interesting that she, you know, discusses medieval alchemy in regards to that because, you know, it fits quite well with some of the theories of the Golden Dawn um, on talismans, which we will look at later in this book and in this kind of uh, discussion. Another popular um, Chinese talisman that was used for feng shui purposes is what's known as the, called the Bagua mirror. And this is basically like a circular mirror that has eight trigrams around its perimeter, each representing different aspects of life. So like health, wealth and relationships. These are traditionally placed in an area where there was negative energy believed to enter and it reflects the energy out, thus protecting the environment. The Bagua mirror is, as an idea, is rooted in the principles of yin and yang and was believed to balance energies in the environment. We also see magical talismans or, or fuda, as they are known, in Japan. And these date back to ancient times when people, again, believed obviously these supernatural forces could bring them um, good things into their life or protection as well. Ofuda were created by Shinto priests or Buddhist monks and were inscribed with different characters or symbols thought to possess spiritual power. And these talismans were used for different purposes, including warding off evil spirits, uh, promoting fertility, attracting prosperity and also curing illnesses. And they were typically made from paper, wood or metal and could be attached to buildings, cars, or even um, as amulets. During the Edo period of 1603 to 1868-68, food had become increasingly popular among the general population as people began to see them as a form of spiritual insurance against misfortune, and merchants in particular would often carry food with them as they travelled to protect their goods and ensure safe journeys as well as a food in japan we also find talismans called omamori that are often sold at shinto shrines and buddhist temples and these are small kind of rectangular amulets typically encased within a delicate cloth bag and derived from the japanese word verb mamoru meaning to protect so it's again this idea of um, a protective amulet. These would be crafted from different fabrics and again they would have intricate patterns, um, symbolic images to kind of bring about part of that intention and also connect with the, the sacred spirits. 
They would also have um, various different prayers inscribed upon them. Um, and this is particularly prominent in Buddhist Amamori, which often would have sutras like the Lotus Sutra and the Heart Sutra actually embroidered or carved onto them. The Heart Sutra in particular is particularly esteemed um, as a distillation of the Buddha's wisdom and it really kind of beautifully elucidates the teachings on non-attachment and also the doctrine of emptiness which is really fundamental to the Buddhist philosophy and this sutra is a really beautiful invocation that has inspired you know many different translations across time. One translation that resonates deeply with me which I particularly like is a recent one by Thich Nhat Khan, which I wanted to just share a couple of lines from Avalokiteshvara, while practicing deeply with the insight that brings us to the other shore, suddenly discovered that all of the five skandhas are equally empty, and with this realization he overcame ill being. Listen, Sariputra, this body itself is emptiness, and emptiness itself is this body. This body is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than this body. The same is true of feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. Listen, Sariputra, all phenomena bear the mark of emptiness. Their true nature is the nature of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no defilement, no purity, no increasing, no decreasing. That is why in emptiness, body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness are not separate self-entities. Omamori talismans were believed to be imbued with the potential to bestow protection and good fortune upon their bearers. And they were very versatile, so you could wear them around your neck, or you could carry them in the wallet, or you could have them in your car or in other places. Um, and obtaining one of these would generally involve giving a donation to a particular shrine or a temple with the idea that the funds would go towards um, maintaining that temple as well. It's essential to understand, however, that these were not considered to be magical artefacts with inherent powers. Instead, they served as potent reminders of the bearer's faith and devotion and a physical manifestation of their spiritual commitment. And among the various different memorials, there's lots of different options. Um, one called the Kumade stands out. and This was a talisman that symbolised a rake and was believed to gather wealth and success. If we move over to India as well, um, talismans and amulets hold you know, a very important position uh, in the culture there as well, serving as conduits for meditation, religious practice and protection. And their inception really traces back to temple compounds and stupas where these sacred relics which are often mistaken for works of art now, and you see, you know, all over the place, this stuff for sale, um, 
were kind of created and crafted by the hands of monks or holy figures. They believed they possessed an intimate bond with the divine, some even being made from the mix of clay and also the cremated remains of revered teachers and monks. A lot of these talismans typically bear depictions of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and gods and goddesses and during the Gupta and the Pala periods, votive tablets adorned with images of Lord Buddha, Bodhisattva or Tantric divinities grew popular and they've been found abundantly in Buddhist holy sites, particularly in northeastern India. The most iconic image portrays the Lord Buddha in meditative repose under the Bodhi tree, hands poised in a specific mudra, which is a portrayal that dates back to around the 10th century. Particularly noteworthy um, in this particular era, however, is the talismanic symbol known as the Yantra, which was widely utilised in Hindu and Tantric practices. And these were geometric diagrams etched onto metal or paper and were believed to harness the energy of a specific deity. And their purposes were manifold, spanning from you know, prosperity and success, but also to general well-being and health as well. The Sri, Sri Yantra is a sacred geometric symbol embodying the goddess Lakshmi, who bestows wealth and abundance. And this is described by the author David Forley as follows. Sri Yantra is the ultimate symbol of yoga, the unification of Shiva and Shakti, the cosmic vision of the unity of all mantras, the fabric of consciousness weaving everything together. It is not the bodily asanas alone that transform us, but the inner focus and concentration of the mind, the structuring power of universal consciousness. In the framework of Western esoteric symbols, the Sri Yantra really operates as a fountain of inspiration and also as a reference point to other holy diagrams. And despite its kind of mainly exclusivity to the Hindu Tantra tradition, its geometric design and also the philosophical notions that kind of lie behind it represent the ultimate reality of the universe. And this also obviously resonates with lots of other spiritual and esoteric traditions that we've spoken about before, like the obviously the Kabbalistic Tree of Life um, and, and other traditions as well. Regarding the creation of the Sri Yantra, there's numerous different methodologies. However, the process was elucidated well in the book Essays on Thai Folklore by Fia Anuman Rajahon, where he describes it as follows. The ritual process by which a yantra can be produced effectively is roughly as follows. After the usual preliminary purificatory act, as required in all solemn rites, the practitioner will begin by making an address in ever evoking the help, firstly of the holy triple gems, i.e. the Buddha, his law and his council of orders. Next come the chief deities of Hinduism and semi-divine beings, including in their train also certain rishis or holy seers, who are traditional preceptors, peculiar to the particular rite on hand. Then come one's parents and teachers, both in the past and present, 
as relevant to one's particular profession. In certain rites, evil spirits, both local and foreign, are coaxed and coerced at the same time. After the aforesaid act, the practitioner will concentrate his mind religiously and begin to draw the yantra. He has to hold his breath while mumbling specific gathers, or in other words, a magic spell, and at the same time he must not withdraw his coal or pencil, as the case may be, until he has completed specific lines. So as you can see from that quotation, um, it really kind of vividly illustrates the intricate ritualistic process of crafting a yantra, um, a ceremonial journey that is marked obviously by the purification aspect. We've got the invocation of celestial deities and the incantation of particular um, gathers or magical spells. And um, this procedure kind of echoes a lot of the practices found in, in many magical and mystical traditions. So for example, in numerous forms of ceremonial magic, practitioners will employ similar rituals to cleanse themselves and obviously summon the assistance of spiritual entities. Also, interestingly, it mentions about um, you know calling upon one's relatives. I think it says the, the mother and father, one parents and teachers, which again is kind of bringing in this kind of ancestor um, connection into that. And also the idea of the inscribing of the actual pattern itself and not withdrawing the pen until you have completed specific lines. So it's very much a kind of meditative process of going deeply into the symbol. Very, very much like you see these kind of early symbols of the of these sort of spirals from the Celtic tradition as well. Um, which people believe would have been almost like an aid for meditation or an aid to go into a trance state through that process of tracing the tracing the labyrinth. Also, the tree of life is quite similar to that as well. Um, you know, obviously a significant symbol within in, in Kabbalah and the Western tradition, and is a cosmic blueprint that illustrates the architecture of the universe and the human soul so we can kind of think about it from the same point of view as the tree of life where you have the the, the four worlds uh, the god name the archangel the angelic order and then the mundane chakra um, and connecting them all up through the different correspondences through this um, actual drawing of the symbol itself talismans and amulets are also um really important in Thailand and have a really long rich history there that you know it's likely existed within within there for you know centuries um, the early development of magical talismans in Thailand can be traced back to most likely animistic beliefs in the region um, that would be based on the notion that everything in nature possesses a spirit or a supernatural power that can be harnessed for different purposes, including healing, protection, and prosperity. And animism's not just a belief system, but would have been a way of life where people believed wholeheartedly that the spirits of plants and animals could help or harm them. 
There's a really good book about the magical traditions in Thailand by um, Jenks, which you should be able to look up, called Thai Occult, um, that's well worth checking out. But he describes this as follows, and I quote, The ancient beliefs of the region grew from the idea that the natural world holds magical power and the people sought to possess that power for their benefit. Human beings have always attempted to maximise pleasure, which often expresses itself as granting wishes and fulfilling desires. Many animals installed awe or wonder because of their qualities, be it the power of a tiger or the way an insect attracted a mate. To a hunter that killed a tiger, keeping the teeth, fur and claws, meant that he could claim the power of the beast he had slain and be seen to have done so by the members of his society. Certain beetles and insects either attracted a mate through the sound they made or their beautiful colours attained relevance within the belief system that could be used to help young people find a partner. And that's a quote from Jenks, Jenks' book, Thai Occult. As these beliefs in Thailand evolved over time, um, they began to incorporate different elements of Buddhism, which had been introduced in Thailand in the 3rd century BCE. And Buddhist monks were really instrumental in spreading these new ideas about magic and then also in integrating them into tra traditional animistic practices. Unlike many other religions, um, you know, Buddhism is very tolerant and the monks even created you know, Buddhist talismans and amulets that were believed to protect against you know, misfortune, bad luck, illness, you know, black magic, evil spirits, etc. So Buddhist images were often interred in spires alongside the ashes of famous monks and royal individuals, and older ones were also unearthed and used as amulets. So again, talking about what we were discussing uh, yesterday with regards to the the relics, they would actually use you know pieces of bone from you know, famous monks, etc. Additionally, votive tablets were also created in temples and given to donors to fund new temple constructions. One of the most significant developments in the early development of magic in Thailand was the emergence of a class of practitioners known as Kru or Gurus. And these individuals were highly respected members of their communities and were believed to possess special powers and knowledge that could be used to help others. Crew were trained in various magical practices, including divination, healing and protection. And they also developed a system of talismans and amulets, which they believed contained magical powers that could be used to ward off spirits and bring good luck. Another critical factor in the early development of magic in Thailand was the influence of neighbouring countries such as India, China and Cambodia. Uh, and over time, a lot of these, you know, there was a lot of crossover between these particular countries. But the, the practice of magic remains a really big part of life in modern day Thailand, um, serving you know various different purposes, ranging from health and wealth to protection. And it really kind of, it really shows how these sort of beliefs um, 
the ancient kind of animistic beliefs and the more modern ones and obviously the Buddhism as well can all kind of work together uh, and flow together into the kind of fabric. Many Thais also believe in the presence of the deceased ancestors spirits and other other supernatural entities and they envision these beings as traversing our world exerting influence on the lives of the living among these supernatural beliefs the concept of the fee or phi is one of the most prevalent and phi are envisioned as ghosts or spirits with a malevolent potential towards those who are living and there's lots of different folklore stories attributing their origin to individuals who may have met a violent or unexpected end or those who were also deprived of proper funeral rites. One of the most famous incarnations of this is the Phi Pop who is a spectral entity known for haunting and possessing people. Um, there's also another one called the Phi Krasu, and apologies if I'm not pronouncing these right, which is a kind of disembodied floating head that roams the night sky in search of blood to feed its hunger. But in the spiritual realm, it wasn't, you know, solely comprised of evil entities. Um, many Thais also believed in the existence of deities or spirits. Um, and these spirits are often linked with specific locales, such as trees, rivers, caves, mountains. And they're also thought to extend their protection and be able to give good fortune to those who honoured them with respect and offerings. As with others, this obviously you know really helps to paint this picture of how they kind of work together and how they work with nature and the the magical culture there if you visit a, a town in thailand as well you often see what what are known as spirit houses um in villages and towns there which is a kind of like an ornate sentinel box designed as a sanctuary where offerings would be made to safeguard the village from unwelcome spirits a similar process also exists in Thai homes and workplaces where you'll find dedicated shrines receive regular tributes of food and drink. They're often decorated with a colourful array of garlands, incense, flowers and different foods and fruits and these shrines really serve as a medium for human beings, for the locals that live in that place to interact with the spirit realm and it's widely believed that the spirits absorb the energy from the offerings and then bring luck to the house as well. Obviously, if you don't give offerings, then there's also you know, potential that they will be angry with you as well. As a house for the spirits, these houses also shield the, the main building and its inhabitants from unwanted spiritual intrusions so almost act in a similar way to kind of like a guardian um, would in a kind of western magical tradition as well as these practices though in thailand many many thais also adorn themselves with or wear a wear particular amulets and this tradition traces back to the 
the mid Ratanakoshian, and apologies I'm not pronouncing that right, of the mid 1800s when amulets used to be used for protection and other purposes. And it's evolved into a widespread cultural phenomenon now. So, you know, lots of different temples manufacture these amulets for for different donations. Amulets were usually crafted from different materials. As you see, one's made out of clay quite often, bronze, wood, um, gold, you know, coconut shell, glass, you know, lots of different materials. And as I mentioned before, some are also imbued with secret ingredients such as the ashes of deceased individuals, flowers or herbs. It's also quite a widespread belief that the Thais choose their rightful amulet. The, it's also a widespread belief that amulets choose their rightful owner and communicate with a potential inquirer. So it's this idea that there is a spirit within that amulet who is reaching out to people and is almost like selecting who it wants to be its owner. An example of a of one of these is known as the Fra Somjes, um, which dates back to the, the reign of King Rama IV in the 19th century and is named after Somdej To, who was a famous monk who was believed to have crafted the first amulet of this kind. And this normally shows the image of a Buddha on the front um, with a top knot on his head and then the back is etched with Pali script, which is a sacred language in Theravada Buddhism. Um, many people believe that the Fra Samjad amulet can bring about good fortune, wealth and protection from misfortune. To enhance the power of the Fra Samjad, it was often, when you, when you actually bought this or when it was created for you, traditionally you'd often take it to a Buddhist temple and get a blessing from a Buddhist monk um, during a ceremony, which would normally feature a kata, um, or a chanting prayer, basically. Um, and the kata, which is essentially like an incantation or a prayer, um, could also have sorcerous elements to it. Um, so, yeah, essentially they would, they would do the kata, but then they would potentially also add some other bits into that as well in terms of if there was a specific intention behind the amulet. So again, you get this kind of crossing over between between light and dark from that point of view. And while kata chanting, you know, is similar to prayer in some senses, it does have uh, differences because each kata does cater to a specific intention. So whether it's for dharma practice or a magical invocation. And despite different understandings, um, it's believed that even the Buddha himself recommended kata chanting as being a way to strengthen your determination and also enhance mindfulness. So it's very much this idea of almost like the mantram, which is a common technique in meditation where um, to keep the mind focused, you can repeat a phrase or a particular word over and over again um, and it kind of eventually will shut off the the monkey mind from that point of view um, so you can kind of achieve that proper level of trance state which helps with regards to magical realization
and many of the Thai Buddhist amulets are inherently linked with particular kata chants and these these chants would basically bring forth the power of the amulets um so there's different examples there's one called the chinabanchon kata um, that reveres different buddhas who vanquished mara and his forces and it goes as follows. I just wanted to quickly read a section of this. Those Buddhists, those Buddhas who defeated the Mara and his hosts were the most brave, sublime, sublime, noble and mightiest of men who had sipped the immortal taste of the Four Noble Truths. The 28 Buddhas, one of whom was Tanhakara Buddha, were true leaders of the world. May each and every one of those wise sages be dwelling upon the crown of my head. May all the Buddhas be enshrined on my head and in my eyes, their sacred teachings. In my heart, the community of noble disciples of the Blessed One, who are the spring of all virtues. And that's a quote from the, um, the Tanhankara um, Kata. And as I said before, these would be these would be recited by monks normally in a particular temple. And when they'd finished doing it, they would then place the amulet around the neck of the the person who it's for, or it would go into like a designated place, like a shrine or an altar. Thai amulets, however, were not all confined to benevolent purposes, and there exists. You know, quite a big prominent tradition of amulets used for more, slightly more menacing intentions. Um, and some of these amulets were believed to possess, you know, supernatural powers that would be capable of, you know, bringing about bad fortune and things like that. Which again shows this, this idea of, you know, particularly in some of these Eastern magical practices, the line connect separating white and black magic um, is often blurred where you get this kind of grey area where both can coexist at the same time. One intriguing amulet is the is what's known as the Kumantong. And these amulets or shrines were thought to house the spirits of a deceased child and were employed to draw luck and fortune to their owner. And the rationale was that the spirit of a young or an unborn child possessed immense spiritual strength and would be able to navigate the earthly realm uninhabited by negative karma. And these objects were often crafted from different materials, you know, plastic, bone, ivory, clay, wood, and would also be activated and blessed by a monk as well, which again is quite interesting. Um, these were often used for benign purposes, so they could be used for positive things or also malevolent purposes, depending on the spells that would use during that activation. Um, some of them were created to combat enemies and also to also to kind of do a more kind of um, slightly harsher purposes or intentions as well. So people might actually create these or have them made themselves to, you know, win the lottery or, or you know, draw customers to their business. Um, but it could also be used um, to, to bring about kind of harm as well from that point of view. In Tibetan culture, 
Um, magical talismans amulets are also essential, you know, very big part of their culture, serving as conduits for protection, for healing, and spiritual transformation. And these sacred objects were believed to contain the profound energy of the cosmos, enhancing the daily lives, the spiritual practices, and the overall wellness of many Tibetan people. Um, several types of magical talismans and amulets are notable within Tibet. So, for example, we have um, the ferber, which is is a dagger, really. And this was believed to dispel negative energies and hurdles. These are often used in rituals, almost like a magical weapon. Um, and it was thought to offer protection from harm and ward off evil spirits. Um, but it's also thought to have healing properties as well. We also have the thokcha, which was considered to have descended from the heavens and these were metal tablet uh, talismans esteemed for their power and healing there's also another one called a gao and i'll put some pictures of these in the show notes that was worn as a pendant it's like a small box containing a small image or a mantra um, and then we also see other things like z beads z beads which are little kind of beads, basically, that would um, have unique patterns and energy that would kind of allow people to um, align with one that kind of fitted with their spiritual circle. And also, one of the things that people are most common with, aware of is the prayer flags. And, you know, these obviously bear mantras and prayers and flutter outside homes and temples. And as the wind blows them, they're believed to distribute blessings and positive energies into the world. In terms of imbuing these, these amulets with power, um, a process known as empowerment or blessing was done in Tibet, which was typically done by a lama, and the ceremony entailed invoking the blessings of enlightened deities or entities and charging the talisman with their power. So the Lama would prepare the consecration ceremony and respectively offer various offerings to enlightened beings such as the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas and the deities and this ritual would charge the talisman with the blessings and energy of those entities. Once the consecration was complete, the talisman then would become a potent protection, healing and spiritual transformation tool and it would commonly be worn or carried to establish a connection with the spiritual blessings of those enlightened beings and thus enhancing the individual's spiritual practice. One particular example of a talisman in Tibetan culture is the Wheel of Life or the Bhava Chakra symbol. Um, and this particular symbol you see a lot in Tibetan Buddhism, and it really represents the the cycle or the cyclic nature of existence. So this endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. The belief is that understanding and adhering to the Buddha's teachings can lead to liberation from this cycle, which then culminates in enlightenment. And if we look at a lot of talismans, a lot of them bear these symbols of the wheel of life, um, of the Bhava Chakra alongside other sort of mantras and symbols and they'd be incorporated into spiritual practices like meditation and 
prayer that would connect with the Buddha's teachings and promote spiritual growth and transformation as well. Another one is another recognized one is is the Tibetan Dojo, um, and this is like a, a quite a compact object again modeled after a thunderbolt, but it signifies the the Buddhist teachings, which were indomitable and potent in terms of their power, and it's also considered to be a symbol of spiritual prowess and strength necessary to conquer inward and outward foes. Graham Coleman, in his really good book, A Handbook of Tibetan Culture, um, explains the form and function of the Tibetan Dorje as follows. The Dorje or Vajra in Tibetan Buddhism embodies the essence of reality and the journey towards enlightenment. It's a ceremonial object employed in various ceremonies and practices, purported to have the capacity to cleanse the environment and repel negative energies. Crafted from metal, its form symbolises the unbreakable nature of reality and the combination of method and wisdom on the Enlightenment path. Um, and this, this unique kind of magical tool, mystical tool, um, we can find in several different Tibetan texts like the Vajrakuta Sutra and the Dorje Fubra. One early text beautifully describes the Dorje and its potency saying, all transient things are akin to a dream, an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, dew or lightning flash. They should be viewed in this way. The Dorje is the great symbol of the ultimate state of things. We can also find more detailed exposition really on the power and purpose of the Dorje in another text from the Nyingma tradition which talks about how the Dorje can sever ignorance and negative emotions, thereby purifying the mind, saying as follows. O Dorje Ferber, you are the physical manifestation of all the Buddha's wisdom and compassion. With your keen edge, you sever the ties of ignorance and afflictions, releasing beings from the chains of samsara. Your triple facets symbolise the three kayas, while your nine wrathful deities signify the nine yanas. With your potency, you safeguard the teachings of the Buddha and all beings who seek refuge in you. May you forever reside in my heart and mind, and may I constantly be under your protection and guidance. So these, these um, texts you know, clearly kind of underscore how the Dorje was used as a symbol of kind of the ultimate reality, but also this transient nature. And also its role kind of as an amulet or a talisman in assisting the spiritual aspirant on their journey as well. That's all we've got time for in this episode. However, next time we will be continuing our discussion on the history of magical talismans and amulets by looking at the magical talismans from the Judaic tradition so if you have enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, then please stay tuned. I would like to finish this episode with a poem by the Chinese mystic Lao Tzu, known as The Master Does Nothing. The Master Does Nothing The Master doesn't try to be powerful. Thus, he is truly powerful. 
the ordinary man keeps reaching for power. Thus he never has enough. The master does nothing, yet he leaves nothing undone. The ordinary man is always doing things, yet many more are left to be done. The kind man does something, yet something remains undone. The just man does something and leaves many things to be done. The moral man does something and when no one responds, he rolls up his sleeves and uses force. When the Tao is lost, there is goodness. When goodness is lost, there is morality. When morality is lost, there is ritual. Ritual is the husk of true faith, the beginnings of chaos. Therefore the master concerns himself with the depths and not the surface, with the fruit and not the flower. He has no will of his own. He dwells in reality and lets all illusions go. Mm-hmm.